Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So did you ever have a Venus flytrap as a kid? I did not. I mean, my cousins, Roshni and Rohan, who are so cool, they had one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, all the cool kids had one. It's true. You know, I think one of the things I remember most about it was how impossible it was to convince my friends not to keep making it close up <laughs> like this one that I had. And there was just something too satisfying about I don't know, taking a pencil or something like that and triggering it to close up. Yeah, I feel like every kid who's been around one is guilty of like trying to feed it something they shouldn't. Well, and I was recently reminded of a little display of these carnivorous plants that one of our teachers had put out in front of her classroom. This was back in third grade. And you know, there were some Venus flytraps, some pitcher plants, of course, a few others. And it was weird how problematic this display became <laughs> because you had this one group of kids that just couldn't resist. And so every day at recess or anytime they were outside, they would try to find anything to feed the plant, like insects, whatever they could find. And things got a little out of hand when one day the teacher found a matchbox car inside <laughs> one of the pitcher plants. I had no idea. I, I, I didn't think uh, Mashbox cars tasted like meat. <laughs> well, me either, but apparently they did. But it really did show just how impossible it is for a group of kids to resist feeding these plants that they saw as just being so exotic. And, you know, keep in mind, this was, I think, a year or two after the remake of Little Shop of Horrors had come out. Uh-huh. So, you know, this idea of a ferocious flesh-eating plant was was kind of already in kids' minds. And It actually led to the bigger problem, which was that some of the older kids in the school were telling some of the kindergartners that these plants were going to eat them, of (laughs) course. And it only took a couple of kindergartners who simply refused to walk past the display to put it to an end. And the display disappeared as quickly as it went up, or else I guess it just got moved to the science lab. But either way, (laughs) it was no longer in the hallway for kids to see. Poor kids. But, you know... Even if you're horrified by the plants, like there is something so fascinating about them, right? Yeah, and it's what made us want to tackle today's topic. You know, to talk about things like the plant that Darwin described as the most wonderful plant in the world. 
or to think about which animal actually likes to spend its nights inside a pitcher plant. And of course, which state is the only one with an official state carnivorous plant? There is so much to bite into. So let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangash Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, tending to his own Venus flytrap, but trying to feed it... Is that a Slim Jim? It is a Slim Jim. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. I know. I I already told him I I don't think it's going to eat a Slim Jim, Tristan, but he just looked me in the eye and said, meat is meat. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a weird catchphrase there, Tristan, but... I mean, this is something that a lot of people are actually curious about is what types of meat do Venus flytraps prefer, do you know? Yeah, so usually, of course, they go for insects and spiders. Though I, I did read that some flytraps will occasionally catch a small frog for dinner. And oh, wow. there, there are also these carnivorous pitcher plants in the Philippines that are big enough to digest rats and shrews. Wow, so that's actually true then. Is that something that happens often? Not exactly. So frogs and rodents are pretty big meals for carnivorous plants. Uh, basically, it's like a... I don't know, like if, if if human ate an entire cow or something, right? It, it's not something <laughs> that we do very often just because of how much time and energy it takes to digest something that huge. Yeah, I, I don't eat an entire cow every day. I feel like that's just more of a sometimes <laughs> food sure. for special occasions, the, the full cow. But I mean, seriously, though, how amazing is it that there are plants that can actually eat animals. I mean, it's kind of terrifying, but it's also pretty incredible. Yeah, it's one of those things that always manages to amaze me and creep me out like every time I think about it. You know, it it also just seems so unplant-like. It feels like, you know, a plant that hunts and traps and kills and digests a meal. Like, those aren't plant activities. I don't mean to stereotype, but... (laughs) And that's why today's show was such a fun one to put together because so much of what we found out was just completely unexpected. So today we'll be answering all sorts of bizarre questions that most of us have never thought to ask. Things like, why did carnivorous plants evolve a taste for meat? Do Venus flytraps really know how to count? And how come Thomas Jefferson was so obsessed with meat-eating plants? There's a lot to cover today, but where do you think you want to start, Mango? So one of the things we should probably get out of the way right up front is why carnivorous plants eat meat in the first place. I think it's clearly because they're they're evil. We <laughs> talked about the the timing of the movie Little Shop of Horrors. If, if scientifically speaking, I think that is the answer, right? Yeah. So you know, one weird thing is I've never seen that movie. As strange as it is, oh really? Yeah, but uh, <laughs> and I know it's beloved. But uh, you know, for actual carnivorous plants, meat isn't really what they're after. Like they they don't capture live prey for the thrill of the hunt or whatever, or for the taste for that matter. Um, you know, as you can guess, they're, they're just doing it as a way to obtain important nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus. I mean, but it feels like there's got to be an easier way to get those nutrients. Like, why not just absorb them through their roots like those nice, you know, peaceful plants that are out there? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it is kind of an extreme measure when you think about it, but they had to develop that way because carnivorous plants tend to live in places where the soil is really thin and poor in nutrients. Um, so you might think of like a swamp or a bog. And, and since the plants can't get what they need from the soil alone, they get it by digesting this live prey. Uh, basically, the nutrients that come from the prey help the plant grow faster and increase their reproductive odds. 
All right, so if the meat-eating trait was an evolutionary response to poor soil, then where did the carnivorous plants first come from? Because I'm just curious which part of the world had soil so bad that the plants were having to figure out like how to eat flies and stuff like that just to figure out how to survive. Yeah, I mean, carnivorous plants are native to places all over the world. In fact, you can find them on every continent but Antarctica. And it's interesting because it suggests that throughout history, plant species have evolved carnivorous tendencies again and again. In fact, they've done it no less than nine times, according to researchers. And uh, any place in the world that had lousy enough soil basically became this breeding ground for carnivorous plants. And today, there are actually about 600 unique species worldwide. Oh, wow. So, So you're saying that each of those 600 can be traced back to one of you know, 10 or so common ancestors. That's right. Because even though several different plant species hit upon the idea of eating meat, they came up with totally different like kinds of traps for sourcing that meat. Um, You know, we're probably most familiar with Venus flytraps, which have those spring trap jaws and and Mm -hmm. that they use to snare their prey. But, uh, you know, other carnivorous plants have their own strategies. There's, um, there's the sundew plant, which uses a bunch of sticky tentacles to like grab passing bugs. And um, there's something called the butterwort, which uh, has this broad, flat leaf. And, and that kind of acts as like a flypaper. So an insect gets stuck in place and, and then the leaf glands cover the bug in digestive mucus. And, you know, all the nutrients are then absorbed straight into the leaf. Oh, what a nightmare. Mm-hmm. It's like being chained to a wall while the wall eats you. It's just not, not <laughs> something pleasant to think about. Plus the wall is dripping this gross goo all over you at the same time. Yeah. Cool. But you know, as memorable as the butterwort's trap is, my, my favorite carnivorous plant is the pitcher plant. And they're probably the second most known next to the fly traps. They have these specialized leaves that use color and, and also scent to draw insects to their pitcher-like organs. And then thanks to all these downward-facing hairs on the leaves... The insects aren't able to crawl back out. Instead, they just slip into this deadly enzyme bath that slowly digests them. Well, I can see why that's your favorite. I mean, who doesn't love the old dunk them in a tub of acid routine? I mean, it's impressive. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, I get that it's gruesome, but I kind of like how well designed it is, right? Like it's super tricky and, you know... Pitcher plants can be gross too. They, they don't actually have a way of expelling their waste. So as the plant gets older, its pitcher just kind of fills up with all these indigestible insect parts until it kind of becomes this big bug graveyard. And while the pitcher plant's acid bad sounds like kind of bad, the thing is like all carnivorous plants rely on some kind of chemical cocktail to digest their prey. Um, fly traps inject it into the chambers where they trap their prey. Um, butterworts, as we mentioned, secrete it through their leaves. And in, in fact, there was a study last year out of the University of Buffalo, and it shows just how similar this technique is across species. Basically, it proved that different carnivorous plants, including ones that were only distantly related, all use the same molecular recipe for digestive fluids. And that's despite the fact that some of these plants are native to different continents and evolved separately over the course of millions of years. Oh, wow, that's interesting. So I guess they took fluid samples and compared them across species or something? Yeah, exactly. And they found that all the plants relied on similar enzymes. But what was even more amazing was that the enzymes aren't unique to carnivorous plants. They're actually used by non-carnivorous plants as a way to fight off pathogens. All right, so then when the carnivorous plants kind of adapted and repurposed the enzymes for use in digestion, but I mean, how did that work exactly? The example I came across is this uh, polymer called chitin. 
And apparently it's what the cell walls of uh, fungi are made from. So plants obviously don't want a bunch of fungi growing on their roots and choking the life out of them. So they produce this special enzyme to break the chitin down and keep these uh, funguses at bay. But in the case of carnivorous plants, that enzyme has been repurposed to eat away like insect exoskeletons. And uh, that also happens to be made of chitin. So it's a pretty wild case of plants kind of reprogramming their existing genes to suit this more meat-loving lifestyle. Huh. All right, so, so maybe all carnivorous plants share this same gross bond, but I still think you need to convince me a little bit more about pitcher plants. <laughs> You're really on this. <laughs> it's that, that, you know, that flooded graveyard you described has to make them like 50 times grosser than the other meat eaters that are out there. It's just kind of weird. Well, what if I told you that a pitcher plant is actually a cradle of life? <laughs> I think you'd just be making up words. What, what do you mean by that? So one of the things I was surprised to learn is that uh, there are actually some species of super tiny frogs that lay their eggs in the safety of a pitcher plant. And oh, wow. then when they hatch, these baby tadpoles spend their first weeks of life swimming in that murky water right up until they're old enough to sort of hop out and strike out on their own. You know, there's also a mammal in Borneo that just likes to cozy up to pitcher plants. It's called the common woolly bat. And apparently one of its favorite places to sleep is snuggled up inside a pitcher plant. Wait, it actually sleeps inside the pitcher? Like, why would it want to sleep in a bunch of dead bug water? What's the <laughs> incentive there? Well, that's what makes this particular species so special. So it, it actually grows two different kinds of pitchers. The first is your standard bug catching pitcher. It's close to the ground. It smells sweet. And it's filled with these digestive fluids. But the second type of pitcher is designed especially for bats. It's higher up. It's dry inside. And it's shaped almost like a little reflector dish so that the bats can easily spot it with their sonar. Well, what's so special about bats? Like, why would the plants kind of roll out the red carpet just, just for them? I guess it's that the plants are actually after the guano or, you know, the bat waste. And every time the bats spend the night, they relieve themselves and leave nutrients for the plants to absorb. So it's kind of like a bat hotel where everyone just pays for the room with feces. Oh, kind of a disgusting <laughs> business model, but whatever works. But I mean, I think you sort of brought me around on the pitcher plants. They, they are pretty enterprising. I have to give you that. They are. And, and, you know, pitcher plants aren't the only ones either. You know, carnivorous plants in general have this alien kind of cleverness about them where when you look at the level of ingenuity and precision on you know how they display their traps it's kind of easy to forget you're dealing with a plant and not some kind of intelligent animal yeah i know what you mean and you know i think the venus flytrap would probably be a good example of the kind of of the kind of intelligence that you're talking about so what do you say we take a closer look at, at what makes those tick yeah that sounds great but first let's take a quick break The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to 
bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the cutthroat world of carnivorous plants. You know, despite their violent tendencies, meat-eating plants have had their fair share of admirers over the years. You know, Charles Darwin, for instance, was a big fan of carnivorous plants, and honestly, maybe too big of a fan. <laughs> he wrote an entire book about them, and at one point, he even declares the Venus flytrap to be the most wonderful plant in the world. He also went to bat for the plants against scientists who weren't as enthusiastic about meat-eating plants as he was. Like, you remember those those sundew things that you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. the plants with the, the sticky tentacles? Well, apparently Darwin knew a botanist who didn't think sundews were anything to write home about. So Darwin sent a note to the guy saying, quote, You are unjust on the merits of my beloved sundew. It is a <laughs> wonderful plant, or rather a most sagacious animal. I will stick up for the sundew to the day of my death. <laughs> I mean, it does sound like he was really smitten. And it's funny because Thomas Jefferson had a similar fascination with flat traps, though. I don't think he ever got to study them up close the way Darwin did. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, it's, it, it's not for lack of trying. I was actually looking into this a little. And it turns out that Jefferson had an especially tough time tracking down his own Venus flytraps. 
And it's a little weird because you have to consider that some Venus flytrap species are actually native to the Carolinas. In fact, this is a, a little bit random, but North Carolina is the only state to select an official state carnivorous plant, and that is, of course, the Venus flytrap. What a great fact. You know, it is very smart of North Carolina to have snapped up that in the first round of the, you know, carnivorous plant draft. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, did, uh, you know, I, I want to talk about Jefferson more. Um, did he ever get his hands on a flytrap? Well, we actually don't know for certain. I mean, what we do know is that Jefferson started a letter campaign back in 1786, and he was requesting that multiple people send him either flytrap seeds or fully grown plants as soon as possible. I guess this was an <laughs> urgent matter. And unfortunately, the plants were so hard to come by and the Postal Service was so unreliable back then that Jefferson didn't actually get his hands on the seeds until a full eight years later. So on January 1804, President Jefferson wrote a letter to Timothy Bloodworth saying, I thank you for the seed of the flytrap. It is the first I have ever been able to obtain and shall take great care of it. So he finally got it then. Yeah, he definitely got some seeds in 1804, but unfortunately the trail goes cold after that until like 1809 or so. And Jefferson writes his last mention of flytraps in this manuscript that's about gardening. And it's it's kind of an ominous, but a little bit confusing of an entry. Uh -huh. So he simply wrote, sowed seeds of Dionia muscupula in a pot. They were several years old. <laughs> So I'm guessing nothing came of that. But it's kind of amazing that he didn't bother. Like after, what, eight years he was asking for these seeds, he finally got them. Mm -hmm. And then he didn't bother to plant them for like another five years. Like, yeah. I'm kind of questioning his commitment to the plants. I guess so. It feels a little odd. But you might want to excuse him because he, he probably got a little bit busy with the whole Louisiana Purchase uh, thing, got a little distracted. But you know, one thing that Jefferson and Darwin would both have liked is a recent study that showed that the Venus flytrap actually knows how to count. So what does that mean exactly? Like, what is it counting? Well, actually, a few things. But I, I feel like we ought to back up just a little bit to understand how the flytrap functions. So for starters, each plant has multiple traps, each of which is made of these specialized leaves covered in these tiny sensory hairs. And so the leaves of the trap, as we mentioned, secrete this sweet-smelling nectar to help lure in those hungry insects. And when one of these visitors brushes against the plant's sensory hairs, the trap can actually snap shut within a tenth of a second. Hmm. So then after the digestive period that lasts a week or longer, the trap reopens and the husk of the insect blows away while the process starts all over again. So each trap catches about three bugs before it wears out and then really has to be replaced. But again, since the plant uses multiple traps at once, they never have to miss a meal. I like how poetic that sounds. The husk of the insect blows away. Yeah, yeah beautiful. <laughs> but, you know, it also sounds like the system kind of runs like clockwork. But um, I I'm kind of curious still, where does the counting come in? Well, clockwork actually isn't a bad analogy because the actions of the flytrap are basically mechanical. I mean, they're, they're, their movements aren't directed by any kind of consciousness or anything like that. But it doesn't mean there isn't some sort of calculation that's going on. So for instance, flytraps can actually count the number of times that their prey comes in contact with the sensory hairs that are on its leaves. And each of those touches brings about its own unique reaction. So in the very first touch, for example, the plant actually does nothing. And this makes sense if you think about it, because, you know, a single touch could be a false alarm. You could have a raindrop or a falling leaf or, you know, bait from a Slim Jim or something <laughs> like that. But Essentially something that wouldn't be worth the energy of closing the trap. So 
Instead, the plant waits, and it waits on that second signal, and if one arrives within the next 20 seconds, then the trap springs shut on what is hopefully this nice, juicy cricket or something. So it really is pretty amazing how it how it does function like clockwork. That's fascinating. So, so the first touch kind of sets off this kind of internal timer in the plant, which is pretty wild. Yeah, but the plant actually doesn't even stop there. I mean, it keeps on counting. So after the trap is sprung, the prey is still alive. And it keeps on struggling. And as it does so, it bumps into the trigger hairs even more. So the third and fourth touches send these electrical impulses to help prepare the trap for digestion. Then the fifth touch tells the gland cells in the trap to begin producing digestive enzymes. And so from there, each additional touch produces these proportionally you know, greater enzymes uh, being created you know, in order to help digest the, the food there. So the more an insect struggles or the bigger and stronger it is, you know, it'll it'll mean that the plant has to release more enzymes in order to fully digest it. And it's crazy to think about because the fact that a fly is fighting for its life is actually the very thing that brings about its death. And the harder it fights, the more the plant learns how to kill it. It's it's it is pretty wild. Yeah, I, I didn't realize fly traps were so methodical about their murders. I guess it, it's true, but I mean, if it's any consolation, though, the captured insect isn't alive as it's being digested, and and that's because the trap is actually hermetically sealed after you know a few hours. So the insect has run out of air well before this digestive huh. fluid is pumped in to to kind of do its thing. Which I guess is a little more humane, but I, I am curious how the plant knows when its prey is fully digested. Like, does it? count out like a hundred Mississippis and, and then just spits it out? You know, how yeah, does that work? I think plants count by Mississippis <laughs> as well. It's pretty, it's an amazing fact about nature like that. It's actually a little more nuanced than that. I mean, the, the inside of the trap is lined with chemical sensors that detect the chitin in a bug shell and all the nutrients in its blood. So the plant just keeps on digesting until it can't detect that stuff anymore. And and once the taste of chitin and nitrogen is gone, the plant knows the bug is tapped and it's time to find something else to eat. I, so I think what's most interesting about this to me is that I feel like I'm just picking up valuable tips if I ever have to face off against like a giant Venus flytrap because, <laughs> and you know, maybe I'm wrong here, but it sounds like if you're ever caught in a flytrap, you should just be patient, right? Like, like if you just only moved once every 20 seconds or so, you could probably get out of there without springing the trap. Well, and even if you did get caught in the trap, if you stayed still and waited long enough, the digestion would would never begin and the trap would just reopen the next morning. So, you know, just for our listeners and the off chance you ever encounter a man-eating fly trap, now you know exactly what to do. <laughs> well, as long as we're on the subject of fictional fly traps, why don't we spend some time on a few of the myths and legends about carnivorous plants that have sprung up over the years. But first, let's take another break. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to 
bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. All right, Mango, so since you brought up man-eating fly traps again, I thought we should settle the age-old debate and answer once and for all whether or not a Venus flytrap can really digest human flesh. <laughs> if any guesses on this one? So I would rather not have to watch my back around a houseplant, so I want to okay. believe that they can't, but I guess there's no reason why they couldn't, right? I mean, uh, they wouldn't be able to swallow a whole person or anything, but if you threw a little bit of skin in there, it feels like the plant could probably eat it. It's actually true. I mean, it turns out that the flytrap can eat a person so long as they were fed, you know, just a gram or two at a time. And (laughs) this is something we know thanks to a carnivorous plant enthusiast named Barry Rice. And no, Barry did not chop up a bunch of people and feed them to his plants. But just about seven years ago, Barry did contract this mean case of athletes. (laughs) And that gave him the idea for an experiment. He decided to tear off some of his loose toe skin and feed it to one of his Venus flytraps. Just, you know, just to see what would happen. So he triggered the trap to close, and about a week later, it reopened with just a tiny bit of half-digested skin goo (laughs) left inside. And 
The rest had been completely digested and the plant was totally fine. That is so gross. And just the idea that you put a little bit of toast skin in there and no hot sauce or salt or condiments. That's right. <laughs> I, I do have to admit, it is kind of cool that we're still finding out new things about these plants after all these years, right? Like, even if one of those things is that they could potentially eat our feet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and another big question I've had is how did the Venus flytrap get their name? And I mean, the flytrap part makes sense, but how does the Venus fit in? Like, is it a reference to the goddess of love or to the planet? Because to be honest, neither one really makes full sense to me. Yeah, I, I was curious about that too, but I, I couldn't find anything definitive. Some naturalists say the name comes from the white flowers and these ornate leaves that the plant produces. And supposedly they were so beautiful and feminine that people began to associate them with the goddess Venus. However, there's another theory that many historians subscribe to, and that one's a little dirtier. Uh, apparently, a bunch of naturalists in the late 1700s, they thought the plant's trap was, you know, kind of resembled a female genitalia. So, so they started calling it tippity twitchit, which is not a term <laughs> I learned in health class. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. I don't, I don't but know this was the was. 1700s and it was a different time. But, you know, uh, a few <laughs> years later, someone decided to class up the allusion to femininity and they gave it the name of a goddess instead. Those naturalists are just a bunch of cards, mm -hmm. huh? That's pretty <laughs> funny. I think I'd rather stick with the Little Shop of Horrors origin story and just say that the plants are actually aliens from outer space and I guess the planet Venus, presumably. Yeah, so, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, you wouldn't have been alone in that theory. So back then, we didn't know much about the surface of Venus and all you could see through a telescope was this thick blanket of clouds. So a ton of researchers speculated that Venus might be this steamy planet covered with lush jungle landscape. And, you know, this really sparked the public's imagination. Um, Sci-fi writers began depicting the planet as this, I guess, this world of carnivorous plants. And, and of course, that theory fell to the wayside when scientists actually could see the planet's surface and, and realize that it's actually a balmy 900 degrees or so on it. So, you know, that, that isn't great for supporting life. Ah. Yeah, it seems like there was a period from about the 1880s to the mid-1900s when these stories of man-eating plants were really all the rage. And, you know, one of the most famous instances was also the first depiction of carnivorous plants in pop culture. That was supposedly this first-hand account from a German explorer and scientist. And in 1881, he claimed to have witnessed a ceremony in which this tribe in Madagascar actually sacrificed a woman to this enormous flesh-eating tree and he described the plant as having a base like that of a pineapple with eight long spiky leaves and six powerful tendrils that could wrap around a victim kind of like snakes would, I guess. And this was published as if it was a true story, like in newspapers? Yeah, I mean, newspapers, magazines, science journals, you name it. And other explorers confirmed this story over the years, though none of them ever provided any hard evidence of what they claimed to have seen. And the reports were just accepted as fact for decades, all the way up until, you know, like the mid-1950s wow. when this science writer named Willie Lay finally debunked this whole thing as being a hoax. So I, I guess this was all made up as a way to, like, make money or something? Well, somebody made the story up, but it, it, it actually wasn't the story's author. And in the end, the German explorer turned out to be just as fake as the tribe and the plant itself. Hmm. And so nobody really knows who was behind the hoax, but whoever it was helped cement these carnivorous plants in the popular culture for decades after. 
you know, without this man-eating tree of Madagascar to pave the way, we may never have gotten the genre classics like Little Shop of Horrors or some of the others, which obviously, as you said earlier, made such an impact on you. <laughs> so, uh, you know what I find really strange is, is for all the stories we've concocted about the threat of carnivorous plants and how creepy most people seem to find them, the plants are really the ones that should be afraid of us, not the other way around. Oh, what do you mean by that? Well, matchbox cars for starters. But <laughs> right, right, of course, those are dangerous. <laughs> but one thing I came across this week is that many carnivorous plant species are endangered, possibly as many as half of all known species. And as you might guess, humans are the biggest threat they face from habitat loss to pollution to even poaching. And we're just making things really difficult for meat-eating plants. You say poaching? So people poach these carnivorous plants? Yeah, it's actually a huge problem. So um, if you take Venus flytraps, for instance, you remember how Jefferson had such a hard time sourcing them, even though he lived just one state north of their native habitat. I mean, that's because wild flytraps grow in this extremely limited area. There's a 75-mile range in and around Wilmington, North Carolina. And even within that area, the plants are really rare. All right, so do the plants go for a lot of money or something? Because I feel like you can find them pretty cheap if you just go to greenhouses and they're even in those children's science kits like that you see sometimes. So I'm, I'm a little confused by that. Yeah, that's the thing. The, the plants only net the poachers about 25 cents each on the black market. So that means they actually have to make off with a huge bunch of plants in order for it to be lucrative. And of course, that only makes the problem worse, right? Like, you right. know, I, I was reading this story in Smithsonian about this international group of flytrap poachers who once tried to smuggle 9,000 poached flytraps on a flight to Netherlands. Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's more than a quarter of the species' naturally growing population. Wow, so I'm, I'm assuming they were caught? Yeah, thankfully they were intercepted at customs. Um, this is a little random, but the Dutch guy who tried to smuggle plants claimed that he was, uh, he was actually exporting Christmas ferns, which is such a strange thing. <laughs> That's a pretty bold move, but... I mean, obviously, there are laws against what these guys were doing, right? Yeah, definitely. In fact, the problem got to be so bad that in late 2014, uh, North Carolina passed more laws to about stealing flytraps. But, um, you know, now poachers can actually face anywhere from one to three years in prison for digging up the plants. Well, hopefully that does the trick and kind of convinces these folks to leave them where they are. But, you know, as bizarre and unsettling as carnivorous plants can be, they, they undoubtedly make the world a stranger and more colorful place to live. So I, I hope they stick around, obviously. Amen to that. But, you know, because it couldn't hurt to stay on their good side, what, what do you say we head into the fact off and share some of the more fun facts about carnivorous plants? All right, that sounds like a plan. While Facebook has developed a reputation as the place to stalk exes and manipulate elections, you shouldn't really get down on the social media site just yet because one of the cooler things Facebook has helped us do is identify new species. There's this uh, amateur researcher named Reginaldo Vasconcelos, and he uploaded a picture of a plant he saw on a hike on this mountaintop in Brazil. And it turned out to be a new species called the Magnificent Sundew. Apparently, the plant, which grows five feet tall and can eat dragonflies, is severely endangered. But it's on this mountain that a lot of people access, so it's kind of surprising that it took us this long to find it. Okay, so well, we talked about this earlier, that carnivorous plants use all sorts of techniques to attract their prey, you know, from bright colors to the various fragrances they admit. Scientists in India just discovered that they have another trick up their sleeves. Some pitcher plants in the region glow with this ultraviolet ring around their rim, 
And so while humans can't see the ring, ants and other insects are actually very much attracted to it. That's really fascinating. But how do you test out something like that? Well, the scientists actually painted some of the plants in the wild with some sort of chemical that turned the UV ring off. And when they did that, those plants weren't able to catch nearly as much food as the others. That's really fascinating. So Alice Obscura has a little piece on celebrities with animals named for them. And of course, there are plenty of these, right? Like we've talked about Hugh Hefner has a rabbit named for him. Uh, I think Michael Jackson has a hermit crab. We've recently talked about a shark named for Peter Benchley. But, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, according to the article, only about 50 people have two animals named for them. And only nine people have more than five species named for them. And and those heroes tend to be people like... uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Barack Obama, Nelson Mandela. But, you know, one person with at least 18 critters and plants named for him is David Attenborough. Um, (laughs) The naturalist has a wildflower, a flightless weevil, an echidna, and an Attenboroughsaurus. But (laughs) these are all named for him. But the most interesting to me is the Attenborough pitcher plant, which is only found on one mountain in the Philippines. And this is actually the one that's big enough to digest rats and shrews. Oh, wow. I'd actually love to see one of those things. That's pretty wild. Yeah. All right. Well, here's something that's interesting. In Wilmington, North Carolina, there's a massive carnivorous plant garden. The city apparently created the space after a beloved horticulturist named Stanley Reeder who had passed away. Now, he was known around the town as the fly trap. (laughs) And it's cool because there's a full three-fourths acre dedicated to cultivating pitcher plants, sundews, Venus fly traps, and all these other meat-eating species. And so visitors can come for free and take tours while they're there. And with the one note being that they're asked to wear closed-toed shoes because, you know, of course, the plants do have teeth. (laughs) But what's crazy is that this is a site with a lot of thefts, actually. In fact, in 2013, 1,000 Venus flytraps valued at $20,000 were stolen from this location alone. And while the criminals behind this plant heist were never caught, that's actually the crime that triggered making stealing anyone's Venus flytrap a felony. Oh, that's interesting. And I I do kind of love the idea of a Venus flytrap heist. Like, I would love for the next uh, Ocean's Eleven to be based on that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I had a fact about uh, furniture that's been made to eat insects and and even small rodents, and it's all based on flytraps. But I actually think we should end with uh, Flytrap Man. I I think he deserves the credit. So Sorry, I got a little distracted because... It actually looks like Tristan finally got the Slim Jim to go down. That's a, <laughs> oh, no, wait. Looks like he's eating it. Tristan ate. That's amazing. That's that's really impressive. Well, anyway, sorry, got a little distracted. This was a fun episode to work on. But from Tristan, Gabe, Mango, and me, thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who?
Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.